I, uh, my name is Chad McCartney. I'm the pastor of discipleship here at Austin Oaks Church. And so I'm just going to make a real quick shameless plug for groups and some things that are going on this summer and coming into the fall. If you want to be a group leader or you are a group leader, uh, we're going to be having some trainings in July and August. So just be listening and looking out for those opportunities. As well, if you want to be in a group, I'm not going to say if you want to be in a group because you all want to be in a group, right? So it's just when you get signed up for a group is what I'm going to say. That's going to happen in August. We're going to have our next big groups promo. There's a few groups that go through the summer. A lot of them take a break during June and July. But in August, we'll have our big promo on the 18th and the 25th of August. You're going to see our sanctuary kind of decked out and all of our group leaders will be back there welcoming you into their groups for the fall. So just be mindful of that as you head into the fall. It's a great time to look at your schedules, figure out a good time to get engaged. That's so important uh, in your walk with Jesus to be connected with other people in that journey. So I just wanted to give you a little preview of what's coming. We are in a series in the book of Colossians we've titled Simply Jesus. Uh, and if you're new with us today, uh, you're coming in midway, but you're going to be able to jump right in. We've been looking at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he actually never visited, but he was very close with the person that took his message and brought it to Colossae. But now he's writing from prison and he's encouraging them to grow in their relationship with Jesus, but also to be mindful of some things that were coming uh, through the pipeline with people within the church. There are some deceptions and some tweaks, and he'd given them an encouragement about what he'd heard happening. He told them about the person of Jesus at the beginning of this letter, but now we're getting into kind of the meat and the purpose of why he wrote this letter, and it's because within that church, some people were coming in and, and, and sharing and bringing teachings that were just off-center from what Paul had proclaimed to them in the gospel. Some things that were deceiving people and, and adding to Jesus. It wasn't just Jesus, it was Jesus plus some of these other things and adding these things on there. And so Paul was very concerned about them as a young church getting off track with these things. And, and here's the thing, it wasn't like they were bringing crazy ideas from way out in left field. Sometimes I think we get all worked up as a church about those crazy ideas that are way out there. And how often do you see someone just go from being somewhat grounded in their faith to just way off the deep end of some wild, crazy thing? Usually it's just a tweak or a little add-on or something like that that kind of nudges them off. And those things float around in the church and cause division, they cause challenge, and they cause turmoil. And Paul was very concerned about that. And so he penned these words that we're going to look at Today. And this is just the beginning of a few weeks where he's going to address several of those. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're in Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be reading through verses 8 through 10 today. They'll come up on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. But here's what Paul's doing. Let me give you kind of a framework to hang this in this morning. Okay, Paul is first going to address them. He's going to give them a warning about deception. Okay, so that's the first thing we're going to see out of the gates is Paul's warning them, hey, there's some deceptions that are going on. I'm hearing about these things. I've heard of what these people are teaching. I'm warning you about them. And they're within the church. Deceptions are coming right there amongst the people. The second thing he's going to do is he's going to give them the basis of those deceptions. What are those deceptions kind of based on? Where are they coming from so that they're aware of them when they come? And then the last thing he's going to give them is a solution to avoid those deceptions. Okay, so a warning for these deceptions, the basis of them, where are they coming from, and a solution to navigate through them. So if you have your Bible open, let's look at 
Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. We'll read through it, and then we'll break down those three things and see them right here in front of us. Paul starts with the warning. He says, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world, rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. And you have been filled by Him, who is the head over every ruler and authority. So here's Paul's, let me just put this in in kind of modern day words for us. Here's a simple way we could look at this warning. Beware of spiritual trends that require more than faith in Christ. Beware of spiritual trends that require more than faith in Christ. That's what these really were. They weren't trying to remove Christ. They weren't trying to eliminate Christ. They were just kind of lowering Him or minimizing Him or making additions to Him. And even today, even though some of the things that they are challenged with may be different than what we'll look at, we'll look at some of those in a minute, the fact is, this is the root of what we have to watch for as Christians. Anything that wants to add to faith in Christ is a deception. What Paul is saying here, he uses these words if you look at it in verse 8. He says, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit. Okay? Those, those words actually probably should be all clumped together, be the best translation. Kind of empty, deceitful philosophy. He's not talking about two different things. He's not saying some could be philosophical, some could be empty deceit. He's really saying it's an empty, philosophical deceitfulness. Paul's not saying that philosophy in and of itself is bad. That's not what this passage is saying. The word philosophy just means love of wisdom. And there's many books in the Bible that talk about wisdom and the importance of it. What Paul is talking about is that these deceivers are using an empty, shallow, deceitful type of philosophy. That's what they're using to come in and manipulate. Here's some of the examples, and and we aren't going to go into all these today. They're going to be addressed as you go through this chapter 2, and we'll get to them in the weeks to come. But let me just show you, so you see in this passage, here's what Paul was having to face. One of them was kind of a legalistic religiosity okay, that was going on. What that is, is, is we've all probably come across this. It's people that add all kinds of rules or regulations to faith in Jesus Christ. That Yeah, you've got to have faith in Jesus Christ, but you also got to be doing these four things, or you have to have this that's going on, or you got to dress this exact way. They start elevating certain applications of truth to the level of the truth, and then they say it's got to be true for everyone. And there were some uh, Judaistic type behaviors, Old Testament believers that were coming in, and be, people that were coming in saying, hey, you got to bring a lot of these traditions and a lot of these uh, same kinds of actions, these laws and these rules, you got to follow them. You can't just believe in Christ, you got to follow these things as well. That was one of the issues that Paul was going to address with them. Another one was called mysticism. Okay, there, this is real, was common back then where okay, Jesus is one aspect of God, but there's also angels and there's all kinds of other beings that you have to interact with and you've got to have these mystical experiences. And if you're not having one of these mystical experiences and you're not being able to engage these things that are kind of outside the norm, you're really not walking with this Jesus. And so they were bringing these kinds of things into the church. The third thing that Paul had to address with them was what's called asceticism. It's a fancy word for kind of just separating yourself from anything in this world. 
Asceticism is kind of the practice that monks would carry on into, and, and that's part of what we see, and it's continued in the church, this idea that, hey, the, the world is bad, that everything God has made is bad, and there's a badness in the world, meaning the world system that's against God, but the world in its physicalness is not bad. God created that good. But asceticism says, no, it's bad as well, so I shouldn't enjoy anything in this world. I should separate myself. I should be a minimalist in every uh, shape, and everyone that, that's really spiritual should do that as well. So it's Christ plus my ability to eliminate any kinds of pleasures from this world. And those are the things that they were battling with, these empty, hollow, deceitful philosophies. So you're saying, well, that's great, Chad. If I was living 2,000 years ago, I, that would really help me. You know, what about today? Man, I'm so glad you asked that question. <laughs> In fact, I, I actually prepared and thought through what are some of the philosophies that creep into the church today and kind of nudge us off I'll share a few of them with you. One of them, I think, is, is, is in our society, Western society, is materialism. This idea that, that we define ourselves by what we possess and what we have. And that's true in the world a lot, but it's crept into the church as well. And we tend to think that the more stuff you have, the more blessed you are by God. And if you're truly blessed, then you're going to have this stuff. And so the people that have that stuff are the ones that are really blessed and they're more spiritual, they're better, or somehow God favors them more. And, and so those kinds of mindsets and philosophies creep into the church as well. This legalism that we saw in Paul's day certainly slips into the church as well. We can become isolationists and we separate ourselves from anything in this world that could taint us. And even though Jesus said we not, should not be of the world, he did say we will be in this world. But isolationists are those that say, hey, if you're not isolating yourself from anything in this world like I am, if you're not following the same rules and regulations, if you're not you know, separating yourself in these certain ways just like I do, then I'm not really sure you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's Jesus plus that kind of religiosity that so commonly creeps into the church, especially the longer we're believers. You know, one of the things I've noticed, and I noticed this in myself, I went through this journey as well. It's kind of like the, the freshman to senior high school journey, right? When you're a freshman, you know, you think you're bigger stuff than you really are. But when you get to be a senior, you go, man, those freshmen, they're way smaller than like when we were there, right? You like raise the bar up as you go up and get bigger. You raise the bar up behind you. These freshmen, they can't do anything like near like what we did when we were freshmen. The same thing happens in the church. When we came in, Man, we were just content to get in the door, right? But then as you grow and you mature in the faith, you know what we do? Is we want to raise the standard for getting in. And we create all these extra rules and regulations. There's nothing necessarily wrong with those guidelines, but when they become a requirement in our relationship with Jesus Christ, we fall into these kinds of deceptive philosophies. How about spiritual intellectualism? That's a big one, I think, in our Western society. Is we, we have this mantra, I think, that says discipleship equals Bible study or knowledge. We equate those two. Instead of seeing that may be a step in the discipleship process, but what you know does not determine 
how much of a disciple you are. And so we got our categories and we got our types of theology and we got how we study the Bible and how much you should know and certain verses that you should be able to spit out or certain phrases that you should know. And until you know these things, until you do things the way I do them or, or have this kind of information, you're probably really not a follower of Jesus. It's spiritual intellectualism or experientialism. That's the opposite side of that. We kind of flip to the other end of, hey, it's all about these experiences I have. And it doesn't matter if I know anything or if they're accurate or not. I, if you haven't had these kind of experiences, you're not seeing some of the things I'm seeing, then you may not really have a relationship with Jesus Christ. All of these are these empty, philosophical, hollow thoughts that often creep into the church and become part of our faith when they shouldn't be. Paul then says, what's the basis of them? Where do they come from? And two things we see in this passage about it. The first one is this. They may be based on human traditions. That's one of the things we can see. Uh, is they, they can be based on human traditions. Some of the things can be things that have been passed down for a long time. And just because they've been around for a long time doesn't mean they're right. Doesn't mean they're truth. And Paul says in, in the verse 8 as well, he says, through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition. So these philosophies, these deceitful things can be based on things that are traditional. Have you ever heard this phrase? This often comes right along with this kind of deceit. Is That's how we've always done it. You ever heard that? Worse yet, maybe you like actually said it this morning before you came in, right? That's how we've always done it. That's a statement that often is based on tradition that can creep in and be very deceitful. Just because something is handed down as tradition, it doesn't make it right. It just makes it tradition. And tradition isn't bad, but the moment we elevate tradition to the level of truth, we've followed and fallen into these empty deceits that Paul is talking about. Jesus said this in, in Matthew chapter 15, verses 2 and 3. He says, why do your disciples, so the, the Pharisees or the religious leaders were challenging Jesus, and they said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. Which the washing of hands was a symbolism of washing uh, away the, the ways of the world before they sat down and ate. So that was a symbolic, had a great meaning behind it, but it was simply a tradition. And Jesus answered them like this in verse 3. He answered them, Why do you break God's commandment because of your tradition? Meaning, the Pharisees were great at using tradition to avoid loving the people that God had sent them to love. And the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. But they had brought in traditions that weren't necessarily bad in and of themselves, but then they'd elevated them to the place of truth. It's Christ's law plus our traditions. And now suddenly, think about it, they're challenging Jesus and asking Him why they're not obeying his, their traditions. I mean, it's just ironic. But the sad thing is, is we often do the exact same thing. Mad-made traditions often operate to keep insiders in and outsiders out. Let me say that again. Man-made traditions often operate to keep 
insiders in and outsiders out. We all have this concept that, that once we get to some place, we like it as it was when we got there, but then it's like we want to keep it just the way it is, and, and it's these other people that come in. We never consider ourselves as that one person that came in at some point. It's the rest of the people that are coming in. They're the problem. And so we create traditions that keep them out rather than welcome them in. We often say things like this. This tradition is designed to protect the truth. We need these traditions because they protect the truth that we're about. But I just want to break some bad news to you, church. The truth does not need our protection. It doesn't need it. In fact, you're going to come, I'm going to come, I'm going to go, you're going to go. We're all going to be gone for hundreds of years and guess what's still going to be here? Say it with me. The truth. Yeah, it's survived every generation that's trying to ruin it up to this point. We don't need to protect the truth. Do you know what we need to do as a church? We need to proclaim the truth. But we're so busy trying to protect it as if it needs protection and that we somehow can protect it that we forgot to proclaim it. We forgot to let it loose. Because broken, lost people need to hear it. Just like we did. But we're more concerned about our traditions than we are about truth. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon about the Word of God or truth as we talk. He says, the Word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. Church, we have this truth. And we often set up all these traditions that keep people that need to come in out because they don't understand them or they can't meet them or they can't follow them in the same way. And there's nothing wrong with traditions. We're always going to create traditions. But sometimes we cling to traditions in such a way that it prevents us from accomplishing the mission in which we were given. Jesus loved to break traditions for the sake of a lost and hurting person. He never broke the truth, but he frequently broke traditions. When we elevate traditions to obedience to God, we fall into these deceptions. When we raise a man-made tradition to the level of obedience to God, we fall into this empty deceit that Paul is talking about. Any church traditions that we do this with, They're not wrong in themselves. Traditions aren't wrong in themselves, but they become wrong when we elevate them to the place of truth. So when we say that uh, a certain style of music is required to really be healthy or good music, we, we make a requirement that Jesus didn't make. If Jesus didn't require a certain style of music, and we suddenly do, then we've elevated a tradition to the place of a truth, and we have fallen to a, a philosophical, deceitful, man-made tradition. When we elevate a style of preaching that Jesus didn't follow Himself, we elevate a tradition to a place of a God-given truth, and we follow into this hollow, deceptive 
philosophy. When we elevate our groups and how we even do groups to a way that Jesus didn't do groups, this hits home a little bit. We fall into a hollow deception. When we elevate how we decorate our sanctuaries in a way that Jesus didn't decorate his sanctuaries, or or did he even have them? Hmm. We elevate our traditions, nothing wrong with them, but when we say this is how it has to be, we elevate a man-made tradition to a truth, and we've fallen prey to the very things that Paul is talking about. If Jesus didn't use the same Bible translation that we use, but by golly, we, if you don't use this translation, you're not truly following Jesus Christ. This is almost laughable to me. Because what we complain about in English translations is like a sliver of the difference in English. And there's some bad English translations, don't get me wrong. But when we get into these kinds of things, you're talking about a gap that's about this big between all the English translations. Whereas if you really feel like one translation is the best, then your argument would take you from throwing away the English and going back to the original languages. Because there's more lost from the original languages of Greek and Hebrew to any English translation than there is between any of the English translations. And yet those people that complain about it don't go back. They don't even follow their own advice. Because it's hollow, it's empty, it's deceitful. And when we raise man-made traditions to the level of God's truth, then we are the very deceivers that Paul is warning his church about. Human traditions can often be every bit as damaging as the philosophies that come in from outside because we often are aware of those out there. It's the ones that are right here inside that Paul was warning them about. The second basis, he says, is there may be Uh, based on basic principles of the world. Basic principles of the world. This just means that. How how the world, how we tend to see the world operate. The very fundamentals in this world. And that's different and seen differently in each culture. And in the Greek culture, their basic elements were water, earth, wind, and fire. Those were the basic elements of the world. And they felt there was deities and gods behind each of them. And that's just how things were. And so you had to bring in something that was consistent with how they felt the world operated. For us, I think in a modern society, we also have some basic principles that we think how the world often operates. It operates by power. Those who have power tend to have places of influence. Those who have money those who have fame or popularity. Those are the basic principles of how things tend to operate today. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But what's wrong with them is when we tend to base our our work of the gospel on those basic element principles rather than the truth of the gospel. When suddenly it's like, hey, we need power in order to accomplish the work of the gospel. Or we need money and this much money, and if you have money, then you have influence to, to, to bring about the gospel. Or popularity, we've got to have fame, we've got to have all these things, and we've got to leverage them for the gospel. There's nothing wrong with any of these things in and of themselves. It's when those basic principles become a philosophy that say, hey, we're going to blend them with what the gospel says, and then now try to operate from these basic elements of the world. Here's some things that might... Uh, resonate with you. Have you ever been in a church where you heard someone say uh, uh, the people who have the money 
get to say what happens in the church. You ever been in a church like that? Is hey, I have this much money, but I want this done with it when it's taking place. That's a perfect example of a philosophy that creeps in. Instead of a, a process in the gospel that says godly, mature, humble men or women, people, the leaders come up through, a, through the truths of the gospel of what kind of character they have. That's who God has called to lead the church, not those that have money or don't have money. That's indiscriminate of who's in the church. We shouldn't see anyone any differently. You're not empowered because you have money. And yet oftentimes in churches, it's the people that have money that call the, print, call the shots. And that's exactly how we allow these philosophies to come in. Here's another one talking about power or influence. Ever hear someone use this phrase? Do you know how long I've been a member here? So therefore, we should... You ever heard that phrase? Hopefully you haven't used it, right? No one in our, I've heard there's churches around here where there's people that have used that, but I'm sure not here. here here's a great way to respond to someone that, that uses the longevity or power phrase is, have you ever heard how long Jesus has been the head of the church? It kind of trumps all of it. See, our power, our popularity, our influence, our longevity, that's not what determines the work of the gospel. We can all be attracted to the popular, charismatic personality of, of pastors and that popularity and bring that in and say, wow, yeah, I want to follow that. They're so fun, fun to follow. They're so exciting. They're so inspirational. And there's nothing wrong with any of these things. Hear me out. But it's when those basic principles become the foundation of our philosophy that you have a problem. I cha I'm challenged by this too. A lot of people just want to follow my ministry because of my you know, drop-dead good looks. <laughs> I'm just, you know what? I mean, I, I didn't make this happen. I just came out this way. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> my, my point is this. There's nothing wrong with power. There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with popularity or influence. Don't get me wrong. But when those become the basis of how we do church rather than the gospel, then we have a philosophy that's based on the elemental principles of the world. That's how the world works. We're the church. We come and show the world a different way. So what's our solution? How do we move past these kinds of things? And what does Paul say to this church? I was out on a, a bike ride yesterday, riding out Fitzhugh Road, and, and I came across this sign uh, that just made me smile. So I had to take a picture of it and, and show you guys today. It says, Fitzhugh Baptist Church, Pastor John Jenkins presents Jesus. And I went, dang it, you know, I've been trying to get him here all week long for this message because that was like the main point of my message, and he's already at Fitzhugh Baptist Church, so, you know, I guess you, this is what you get. But I just had to chuckle. It's like he's presenting Jesus. I thought, shouldn't every single church in America across the world have that message on there? The problem is we're presenting everything but him. What I love about this passage is Paul doesn't try to combat it with other philosophies or other sneaky things. He comes right back to the, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And says, you know what, the best way to detect a counterfeit 
is to be so aware of what the reality is that any error is immediately noticeable. My last point is my growing faith in Jesus Christ is fully sufficient. My growing faith in Jesus Christ is fully sufficient. Read with me verses 9 through 10 where Paul fleshes this out. He says this, he says, For the entire fullness of God, God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. He doesn't say part of it or 50% of it or 80% of it. The entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. He is complete. He is perfect. He is everything. And you, he says, have been filled by Him. Meaning you have what you need. It's not a half tank. It's not a quarter tank. It's not three quarters tank. He fills you the moment you place your faith and trust in Him as your Savior. You are complete in Christ. And he says, who is the head over every ruler and authority. Jesus is the head over every ruler and every authority. I love that truth. It says He is the fullness of God in bodily form. Jesus is. The One who walked here on earth in bodily form. The fullness of God. You don't need a telescope. You don't need a microscope. You don't need a horoscope to see Jesus. He's right there for anyone and everyone to enjoy, to love, to learn from, to follow. And it says, I'm filled by Him. I am filled by Him. Jesus told His disciples in John 14.6, He says, I am the way and the truth. Meaning that truth is not a principle, truth is a person. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the light. And no one comes to the Father except through me. It's Jesus. You don't need a a certain socioeconomic class. You don't need a certain education level. You don't need a certain philosophical degree, a certain popularity, or being a certain group. You need one person, and He is accessible to anyone when you want Him. His name's Jesus. In so many ways, He broke from human religious traditions of His day. In fact, that was why He was so often resisted by the established religious leaders. They couldn't control Him with their traditions. And that's what traditions often turn into is ways to control people and he would not be controlled jesus chose to show love and mercy to broken people rather than follow man-made traditions that often kept broken people from coming near to what they needed he certainly broke from the basic principles of the world he could have been the wealthiest person on earth have you ever thought of that jesus could have been the wealthiest person on earth but he chose to live in poverty. He could have been the most powerful person. He could have put himself in the most powerful office in this world if he so choose and use that power to leverage the message that he had. But instead, he often walked in obscurity. He never put himself in places of power. He chose to serve rather than be served. He could have used his 
power and ability to earn tremendous fame in the original Olympic Games. He was back there when like, the Olympics were coming. I mean, just think of how fast Jesus could have been. Think of how high he could have jumped in the high jump. Think of how far he could have thrown the javelin. He could have won every single event. We laugh at this, but he could have. Just like that if he wanted to. And garnished all this fame. Think of the fame that we put on athletes and people in these positions. And he could have leveraged that for his ministry. He didn't. In fact, if you've read the Gospels, one of the strangest things you'll see over and over again in the Gospels for someone who's here to save the world is every time Jesus healed someone, he would often say to them, don't tell anyone what I did for you. Jesus could have used every single one of these elements, but he didn't. He resisted every deceptive, empty philosophy and acted in humble service to our brokenness. He offered himself as a sinless, perfect substitute for you and for me. Think about this, church. In one act, it was simultaneously the most humble act this world has ever witnessed and the most powerful in the same act. That's Jesus. That's who He is. And He has everything that you need today. I don't know what you're grasping for today. I don't know what you think you have to add to what you already have or, or, or you need to, to be sufficient to even start a relationship with Jesus Christ. But Jesus is telling you, you need nothing. In fact, honestly, it's only the person who really recognizes that they have nothing to bring that's ready to receive everything that he has for you in him. So how do we do this? How do I grow in my faith? If it's really that simple, Chad, like how do I do that? I want to go back just a couple verses because Colossians 2, chapter six, or verses 6 and 7, really were the positive side of this negative command we looked at. He says there, So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so here's a little quiz for you. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, okay, do you receive Him by what? By works or by faith? By faith, right? Okay, this is a church, so I'm going to give you one more chance to answer that question, okay? <laughs> when you receive Jesus, so just as you have received Jesus Christ, so as you received Him as your Lord, as you received Him as your Savior, you received Him by faith. That's good, good, right. So he says, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him. So how should we continue to live in Him? By faith, right. Paul has multiple books in the Bible where he's addressing churches that say, hey, we received Him by faith, but now you are continuing with works. And he said, you didn't receive Him by works. Why would you continue in Him by works? Now that's a whole other topic about where works fit in, but we're talking about our walk with Jesus and what we need to be in relationship with Him. So how do I do that? Here's a great illustration I came across. Is, is this, the moment I'm born as a baby, the moment you were born as a baby, 
You were complete. You had every body part that you needed to be fully human. Every body part. As you grow up, you don't add more body parts. Think, oh, I think I'll grow my other arm out today. Maybe a second leg would be kind of nice. I think I'll grow that out, you know, when I'm in my teens so I can get around a little bit better. No, you had everything that you needed. You were complete as a human. The only thing you lacked or needed was nourishment to grow and mature as a human. That's much like our faith. When you're born in faith, you have everything in Jesus. You're full in Him. But now you need to be nourished. You need to grow. You need to feed yourself. And how do you do that? I just want to give you three real quick things that we're going to close out on that I think will help with that. The first is simply this. You need to know Him. You need to know Him. If you're going to trust Him, if you're going to follow Him, if you're going to grow in your faith in Him, you've got to know who it is that you're trusting in. right? You don't often trust in people that you've never met before. So if you want to keep Jesus at the center, you need to know Him. And you know Him through His Word. The Word became flesh. Jesus and dwelt among us. These words are not just truths that we're to follow. They point us to a person. That's why it's so important we see that these truths embody the very person of Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of all of them for you and for me. Paul said it very well in Romans chapter 10 when he said, faith comes through hearing the message of Christ. You want to grow your faith? You want to be nourished? Then you got to hear His truth. That's why gathering like this is so important. When you come and you hear His Word expounded, don't you just feel it in your heart? Don't you feel your faith being strengthened? Don't you find your love for Jesus being deepened as you see pictures of Him, as you hear Him talked about, as you understand who He is and what He's done for you? It stirs your heart. And you want to know Him more. Church, this isn't rocket science. It's not easy, but it's certainly not complicated. Know Him. Take some time. Get to know Him. Trust me. It's better than any person you will ever meet in this earth. We've all been let down by people. He'll never let you down. He'll always tell you the truth, even when it hurts. Man, there's things I read in here, I think, I wish I could rip that page out. Maybe I can just skip over that. Every single time I open this book, He opens my heart. And no one knows me like He does. It's scary sometimes. I'm thinking, come on, God, give me a break. I mean, there's so much stuff you got to work on here. But the fact is, I know He knows me, and I know He has my best. you got to get to know Him. Secondly, trust Him. Trust Him. Proverbs says it like this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him. And He will direct your path. Faith is not about having more faith. It's about 
taking your faith, the little bit you've put in him already, and, it, and it's applying it to different areas in his life. When you understand that he's sovereign over all things, you begin to, to, to have faith that he's got control of what's happening in your life. When you realize that, that you don't have to worry and that he's caring for you in little ways and that your faith sees that part of him, wow, you, you care about the birds of the air and the grass of the field, God, and, and you care about me even more, your faith starts to grow in that area because you see another aspect of him. And you begin to trust him. You get to know him and you take a step. All right, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you in this and see if, if you're trustworthy. And that's the last step. Obey him. Obey him in love and in lordship. He is, loves you and he is your Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 7, anyone who hears my words and obeys them is like a man who builds his house on the rock. Build your house on a rock. Know him, trust him, obey him. It's about him. And you are filled with him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for these truths. Thank you for a gentle, if not direct reminder of how easily deceived we often are, Lord. We're so prone to wander from the basics, even though they're not that basic. The fullness of Christ and the, the completeness of who he is would take a million lifetimes for us to fully exhaust. So Lord, let us spend this lifetime getting to know you, trusting you more obeying you more. Who else is more worthy of our affection? Who else has accomplished what you have accomplished on our behalf? Who else was willing to suffer and die when you should have been worshipped and exalted even in your first coming? Who else? Who are we going to put in your place that could possibly come close to doing what you've done. There's no one. No one else is worthy. So Jesus, we worship you. We trust you. We love you. We obey you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.